Hello, I'm Dr. Virginia Reid. With the current interest in swine flu, I thought it was time we had a considered discussion with a couple of flu and pandemic experts. And on that note, I've asked Dr. David Durheim, the public health physician and expert in flu from the Hunter New England Health, to fill us in. And I've also asked Dr. Chris Cooley, who is the Health Service Functional Area Coordinator for Hunter New England Health, how we plan to manage a pandemic if it occurs in this region and what's being done at present and what we can expect in the future. Dr Durheim, can you put the swine flu influenza into some sort of context for us with influenza in general? Yes, certainly. So we have this novel H1N1 influenza strain, human influenza, A group, and it's behaving very similarly to the usual influenzas that circulate every season um, in, in terms of its uh, severity. So it's not a very severe illness in general. A lot of the people who've actually been affected had, have had actually mild illness and have recovered at home. This doesn't mean that it will remain that way. One thing that we know is that the influenza viruses are very unstable, notoriously unstable, and select for mutations. So we really have to monitor very carefully how this influenza illness um, evolves and whether or not we actually start seeing more severe illness. And this is one of the key drivers for the current emphasis in Australia on containing this particular influenza virus is, is really to try and avoid widespread community distribution of the virus. The reason we know, one of the reasons obviously that we know this is a new virus is that young people are, are being affected as well. So generally most of the influenza burden of illness falls on the elderly. That's the um, influenza that we're, we're used to, yes? Yes, the usual seasonal influenza. But what we're seeing with the um, swine flu or the new influenza H1N1 is that uh, a lot of young people have been affected as well. Um, clearly they haven't got any existing immunity. So it's pretty interesting, isn't it? Why do you think that it is affecting young people? I heard uh, recently that it could be that the some of the older people may have actually met this virus previously in epidemics. Yes, there's or components, I suppose, thereof. No, it's an it's an intriguing uh, question, and it's quite clear that people over about the age of sixty appear to have some resistance to this virus, um, which is you know, almost counterintuitive with what we know normally with influenza. And so it appears that somewhere in the past, something very similar, either in a vaccine or more likely in a, in a wild circulating virus circulated probably in the late 1950s, early 1960s, which has provided some benefit for elderly folk. Um, this is not fully understood at the moment, but hopefully it'll become more clear um, with time. I suppose because our numbers are so small at the moment, we don't really have a mortality statistic for the swine flu. Do we have it for normal flu? Yes, it's very variable with normal flu. In Australia every year, about 3,000 people succumb to influenza or to its complications. And as I've said previously, it's largely in people with underlying uh, complicated chronic diseases and particularly amongst the elderly and that's why they are the focus for the annual influenza vaccination. Um, with the current swine flu, um, clearly most of the experience with severe cases um, is in North America 
and uh, there have been a number of deaths, um, particularly in Mexico, but also in the U.S. and in Canada and, and Costa Rica. Um, fortunately, in Australia, um, there have been no deaths to this point in time. I find it curious that there appears to be a higher death rate in Mexico. Do we understand anything about that yet? I think that probably what we'll find is with time is that uh, there were a much larger number of cases in Mexico than those that have been formally uh, reported to the World Health Organization, largely because the ones that have been formally recorded are the ones that we have definitive laboratory tests on. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very likely that uh, what we see in Mexico in terms of deaths is just the tip of a very, very large iceberg of H1N1 illness. Certainly in the early days, it was the, one of the most um, confusing aspects of this new influenza virus. Why was it so severe in Mexico? Why did it appear so severe in Mexico? But in other countries affected, was it more like the usual influenza? But I think we'll probably find with time that there was much larger scale influenza circulation in Mexico with this virus. Well, I suppose you actually have to develop the reagent that will be able to detect the uh, virus in secretions, yes? Yes. The test itself. One needs a specific test to be 100% sure that it's this virus, and that's why in Australia we're relying on reference laboratories and all suspect viral swabs are sent to those reference laboratories for confirmation. And is hence the delay. It'd probably be a good time, wouldn't it, to discuss what happens when you are symptomatic? Yes, so at the moment if a person returns from an affected area or as we've seen recently from an uh, affected environment like the Pacific Dawn, um, we and and they develop um, influenza symptoms, we effectively uh, treat or effectively try to exclude uh, H1N1 uh, as the cause for their symptoms. So they get placed into home isolation, swabs get taken, and if they merit antiviral treatment, that's initiated. And we try and keep them isolated from the rest of the community so that no one else is placed at any risk until the laboratory definitively rules out H1N1. Um, so that's the current approach. It's largely to try and contain, and that's the uh, the wording that's currently being used by the Chief Medical Officer in Australia is to really try and restrict the amount of community transmission of this novel virus um, by really trying to keep it uh, contained. So my understanding is that initially one is because it's easier to test for, we have you know ready testing for influenza A, initially people are tested locally for influenza A and if that's positive then the test goes to the WHO laboratories in Melbourne where there's a sufficient reagent etc to be tested for H1N1? No, the the good news is that they've validated the tests that are done at the two reference laboratories in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So those are now being used as the as definitive laboratories as well, RCPMR and SEALs. Mm. Um, our, our problem, of course, being in a, in a more rural area is it's the turnaround time of getting those mm. swabs down using mm-hmm. the usual couriers that the laboratories do use. And the further away one is from Sydney or more Melbourne or Brisbane, unfortunately, the longer the turnaround before one is, has a definitive result. And, but all that means is, is that you're in quarantine or isolation that little bit longer. Yes, and, and look at the moment, um, it's, it's, there certainly is 
probably little harm. It's, mm. There is an inconvenience, but there's little harm mm. for the rest of the community if someone is actually excluded just for a period of time until one can be 100% sure that they don't pose any risk to other members of the community. And that person's being treated with what treatment is available during that period of time? Yes, yeah, so mm. if, if they've, so they've not suffered onset, <laughs> no, no, if they've had recent onset of flu symptoms, then um, antivirals are initiated as well. So what's that time for quarantine at the moment? It's a seven-day period. So the best knowledge on this virus is that after seven days, a person poses no further risk. The important reason to keep a person in isolation for that period is that the influenza, even after infection, takes a few days to develop, um, but certainly doesn't take longer than seven days. Right. And so is the vaccination, the usual flu vax, still important for people? Very much so. So we still, even even if it provides no protection against H1N1, and, and we don't know that for certain, uh, we know that we're heading into our usual flu season. Uh, there's no reason to expect uh, that we will have any less of a burden of influenza than we normally do. And, and so people who are vulnerable, particularly the elderly, uh, those with underlying uh, chronic illnesses, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander folk who are over 50 years of age, um, and people who work in healthcare and, and in aged care, they really should make sure that they get themselves vaccinated, not only to protect themselves, but in those last two categories to make sure they don't put other vulnerable people at risk. Absolutely. Dr. Durheim, I'm presuming that you're not the only public health physician, but you, your special interest is flu, is that correct? Yes, no, no, fortunately there are a number of public health physicians <laughs> on my sufficient. team and at the moment I'm very grateful for that. I my bet. role at the moment is because our emergency operations centre is, is stood up or it's active, I'm actually the public health controller in the Hunter New England area at the moment. So all reported cases and their tracing, etc., is uh, you're informed of all of that? Yes, yes, and, and we're working under a disaster structure. So within the in the uh, area health service, we have a health services functional area commander, and that's uh, Chris Cooley, mm. who in normal times is the director of midwifery, um, but he is currently taking the lead in terms of the health response for the whole of Hunter New England. Yes, we're going to be later in the program discussing with Chris the actual program or, or response here in the Hunter New England specifically. But it seems to me that uh, we have a fairly good service here, um, a fairly well-trained service here. We've we've dealt with things like this before and we have experience and we have continually updated our data, etc., to deal with anything that may come up here very adequately? Well, certainly we, we've predicted that something like this, a, a large-scale health emergency and, and an infectious disease one would eventually affect the area. So there has been considerable planning done. Um, there have been a large number of, of, of different levels, but some of them very large-scale field exercises done just to make sure that people know exactly what to do and how to respond. It's still an enormous challenge. Um, influenza is a very difficult virus to contain and clearly every effort is going to be made to do that, to reduce the burden um, on our community. Yes, I suppose I believe that uh, good public information, people are quite willing to do the right thing. It's just knowing what to do and um, how to do it and having access to the system. So that's what we'll be talking to Chris about. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate that you're extraordinarily busy at the moment.
and uh, I hope that you uh, get a chance to to have a breather in between because it may be we may be in for this for the long haul. That's right, Virginia, and and we do appreciate also that. Uh, folk do the right thing now in terms of usual flu prevention as well, both yes. with the vaccination, but also very importantly that we watch our respiratory hygiene, don't cough and sneeze in public, people who are ill, make sure they stay at home and don't go off to the workplace or the school. And clearly hand washing is still one of those pivotal things in prevention of, of the spread of influenza. I suppose that's one of my questions, the uh, hand wash that you can get. You know the pump bottles that have actually been proven to decrease gastroenteritis, etc., cetera, in um, epidemics in you know Asia, etc. Are those things worthwhile? Very worthwhile. In fact, uh, they neutralise the influenza virus oh. too. So using those alcohol-based hand gels, mm. you can't get ready access to uh, warm water and soap, mm. is, is certainly highly recommended. Fabulous. So blow your nose and do that. Absolutely. And throw it out. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thanks, Virginia. Thanks, David. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Wellbeing and I'm discussing the influenza in general and specifically the swine flu pandemic with Dr David Durheim, public health physician for Hunter New England Health. Chris Cooley, the Health Service Functional Area Coordinator for the Hunter New England Health. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Virginia. What does a Health Service Functional Area Coordinator do? A HASFAC. A HASFAC is the person who takes responsibility for the overall coordination of the health services response to any form of disaster. So, for example, um, as we're facing at the moment, the emerging public health crisis with the swine influenza, it's my responsibility to make sure we have all our services at a stage of strategic readiness and, and ready to go whenever we need to. So that's for the Hunter New England region, presumably. That's correct. But you do liaise with the national body, presumably, as well. Yes, yes. So I would imagine that with a service like that, you're actually coordinating with a team of people. Yes, we ha- we have a strong team of people. We've we've got many people we we call upon. We've got what we call an incident classification system. So what that basically means is that we uh, have available to us people who are specialists in logistics, people who are specialists in in planning, uh, specialists from the point of view of public health. Uh, And again, depending on the type of disaster that you're managing, there's many other specialists that we call upon. For example, uh, in the current situation we're dealing with, uh, ICU experts, uh, respiratory physicians. So I have a whole team of people who I actually interact with and uh, internally, and then there's other people externally, including, for example, uh, ambulance, uh, the public health, um, the New South Wales public health um, system down in, in Sydney. So there's a whole range of interdisciplinary people who come together to manage this type of um, emerging uh, threat. I suppose we realise that that's all happening behind the scenes when somebody tests positive for the flu. (laughs) It's not really what you read in the newspapers, is it? No, not exactly. What actually have we done to prepare for a pandemic should it arise? Well, here in Hunter New England Area Health, I would probably be as bold to say we are the best prepared in the whole of Australia. Now, the reason I would make such a, a bold statement is the fact that we've been uh, planning for quite some time to make sure our services would be at a strategic level of readiness. For example, last year, we completed a, a major exercise called Exercise Follows Gump. 
that was back around about last September, where we actually tested the 38 emergency departments that we have in this area health service. Now, when I say we tested them, we tested them from the point of view of the ability to be able to detect people coming in with some form of infection, um, to be able to manage them, to be able to isolate them. Um, so to be able to, to respond to any sort of infection, any sort of threat that you would expect to find within, within any form of uh, pandemic. Now, that was carried out across all 38 emergency departments. It was um, over five days. It involved over 300 people. And it provided an opportunity for people from all over Australia. In fact, we had observers that came from every state in Australia, came actually from the Commonwealth, and we had observers who paid their own way and came from Europe. They saw the importance of this exercise and they were really keen to participate. And because we carry out exercises like this in this area health service, when this emerging threat of the swine influenza hit the world um, with the epicenter in, in Mexico sometime in April, we were just seamless in moving into how we set up our services ready to, to manage um, this emerging threat here within our early health service. And has that been the case so far with suspected cases? Yes, it's, it's, it certainly has. I, I'm, I'm very pleased with how the Area Health Service is responding, and just today, because of the issues we've been dealing with to do with the actual cruise ship that mm. was in Sydney um, yesterday. Mm. Um, we've, uh, I think we've actually uh, surveyed over 40 people that have come through our emergency department today who have actually come in and were, were passengers. Mm on that actual cruise ship so we've detected those people and we've actually opened a, a fever clinic today at john hunter hospital mm-hmm. um the commonwealth and world health would expect you to be able to open a fever clinic within 48 hours mm-hmm. we opened the one in john hunter within two and a half hours mm-hmm. so i think it explains a little bit about our, our strategic readiness and, and hopefully gives a level of uh, comfort and reassurance to to your listeners Mm. I notice one of the things I work in the Northern Territory part time that, uh, and we get tourist uh, venues there, hotels, etc., where people um, have been staying, and part of our uh, need to look after or care for the general populace was the cleaning staff, etc. I wonder how, if you're testing in the emergency departments, how does it broaden out to deal with the community at large? Yeah, well, it, it, and if we're talking about community in large, are we talking about the hospital community or the, the broader community? Well, once people come, well, people are coming from the fever clinic, okay. f- to, to the fever clinic from somewhere and sure. will be going back to somewhere else. So how do we manage yeah, those environments? Yeah, well, with the, uh, when people present to the hospital at the moment, so if they present to uh, John Hunter and certainly within the greater Newcastle sector, we're encouraging people, should they have been on this cruise ship, to actually come to the fever clinic at John Hunter. What would actually happen is initially they are met at a surveillance station in the entrance just outside the emergency department. So they'll be met with a nurse and a doctor who will actually screen them and ask them questions. And then they'll pass through to the fever clinic. Now, once they've been in the fever clinic and swabs and the necessary tests have been carried out, they will be notified to our public health system and then they will go home for a minimum of seven days uh, on home isolation. When they're on home isolation, they will still receive a service from us if they need to in the community from our community nursing staff or they will have daily contact over the phone with the public health system so that the public health physicians are checking up on them on a, on a daily basis. So people will be isolated for, for them 
seven days within their home. So that's the only way we can really try to manage and contain this type of virus. Mm, but their environment, had they been staying in a hotel or something, I guess, was what I was getting at. Oh, I see. The environment uh, they've uh, come yes. from. Okay. Well, the environment they've come from, obviously what ha- actually happens there, we, we're in contact then with that environment. Right. And that would then actually take us into contact tracing. Right. Okay. So okay. can we discuss a little about contact tracing? Sure. So, for example, when we have somebody who is a uh, suspected case with, a, say, an issue like swine influenza, what we'd actually do there is that we would, through our public health system, they would identify X amount of people that have been in contact uh, within the last 48 hours, 72 hours with that individual who we either have confirmed as having the, the infection or who we um, believe is, uh, is a suspect because they meet a certain case definition. So in that case, when we've identified the people who have had close contact with them, those people are followed up on a regular basis also. Now those people are then placed into home quarantine for, for several days also, and they then will also receive the same type of service that the, the person who's suspected or confirmed would receive from our public health system. So the public health system is easily contactable by the general public with any queries? Yes, it certainly is, yes. And what do people do? How do they get in touch with that service? There's, at this point in time, there's a, there's, a, um, there's a telephone number. I can actually give you that. I can give you that number now. If that you would be wonderful. Thank you. Okay, well, the number at the moment, because there's such a demand at the moment on the public health system, it actually goes through our main public health switchboard in Sydney, and that number is 02 942 457 402-942-457-60. That will be handled in Sydney before it's then filtered through to our own um, public health officers, which we have based in, in Newcastle and also in Tamworth. I presume that they're doing that in order to gather data that yes. can be used to continually inform. Absolutely. Mm. That's, that's absolutely right. Right, so you have main, a main sort of command centre and that uh, means that things are well coordinated. We have a main uh, a command centre in Sydney. Um, it's called the Public Health Centre and that is under the auspices of the management of the Chief Health Officer for New South Wales. Our public health system and also my own role as the HASFAC then will communicate with the Chief Health Officer on a regular basis throughout the day and they will coordinate from Sydney the overall response to this from a state point of view. They will maintain the data, even though we have our local data, they will keep a whole of state, a whole of nation, and will be linked in also to the World Health Organization as well in looking at the data. So it's a very, very well-coordinated approach to this type of emerging public health issue. I'm discussing swine flu with Chris Cooley, the HASFAC for the Hunter New England Health Service. I love that name. Chris, do you think that this service would have been in place, for example, in Mexico where this started? There's every possibility. I mean, there's a public health system in in place, but I I would be very surprised to find that it would be up to the standard that we Mm. have here in Australia and certainly the standard that we have here in New South Wales. So this has been a priority of ours for some time, this public health priority? This certainly is, because because we realise that, in fact... Whenever you're getting any form of uh, public health threat, obviously you've got to be able to move, quickly move into containment within the community. And hence we have a, a highly mobile 
and strategically placed public health system. And it's monitoring, the public health system is monitoring things every single day. Mm-hmm. And, and it's in touch with the World Health Organization, monitoring off its site on, on a daily basis as well. So this is just something we do every single day, regardless of whether there's an emerging threat here in our own backyard. We're still doing this every single day. And we take a total global view at it. Um, because as you can see, with, with what's happening with the swine influenza, within the four or five weeks since it's um, been recognized in Mexico, we now have cases in 47 countries, I think it is now. Mm. And, and it's spreading very, very quickly. Which is what we expected. Which is exactly, happen. which is exactly what we we suspected. And of course, and, Virginia. Mm. The, the other, the other thing of interest to us here is where this started in the northern hemisphere, um, going into the spring. Mm. Um, all eyes are obviously on the southern hemisphere because we're going into our winter, and of course, we're already going into our normal influenza mm. A season. So you know, we have to look at this very carefully, and that's why. But we That's don't we know, do we, what effect that will have? No, because we it's don't. it's a new virus for us. That's we don't exactly know right. how it will behave. We don't. Hmm. But we have modelling based on, from what I can gather from what you're saying, we have modelling based on previous experience in place already to monitor very carefully and move quickly and be prepared for anything that does happen. That's absolutely correct. So things like, you know, we're not going to run out of reagents to test or drug to treat, etc. No. We've got all that under control. We have those all under control. We've got those strategically in this area health service, well, across the state, but in this area health service, we've got those strategically positioned now. We're, all day today I've been issuing out, you know, uh, Tamiflu to people who have come through our clinic who are suspected cases, um, our home isolation packs so that people can um, protect themselves within their homes for the seven days. All of that is strategically placed and being issued now. Mm. And have you advice anywhere on a website for people, for example, who may be travelling to countries where they may be affected? Yeah, we we always refer people to the Commonwealth um, Smart Traveller website. Yes, actually, it's www.smarttraveller.gov.au. Excellent. The important thing, I think, for listeners today is is to understand that the best thing to do here is certainly to um, good hygiene, Mm got very, very high levels of hygiene is what mm. we need in place. We need to recognize also if we've got any of these symptoms, we need to go and, and, and get them checked out. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure we're not going into the workplace if we're suffering from any of these symptoms because we will just contaminate everybody else. Mm, absolutely. Now, this, the, the good hygiene, that, what's good hygiene to you? Good hygiene to me is certainly the um, hand hygiene, hand washing. Right. Mm-hmm. Certainly um, making sure, I mean, what we're dealing with here is, uh, is the respiratory illness, which is spread by aerosol, which by that I mean is coughing and sneezing. So obviously covering mm-hmm. the mouth, covering the nose, using a hanky. It's that very, very good hygiene. So making sure that you've got, you're not spraying mm-hmm. um, from nose and mouth and making sure that your hands are, are well washed. Mm. And when you say hanky, I always think of a cloth hanky. <laughs> well, yes. Which might go cloth- through a cold wash. Which might go through a cold wash, exactly. That's a very good point. But I think the, the message to get through to listeners to make sure they're protecting themselves is making sure that they're covering their, their nose and, and mouth should they be coughing or sneezing. With something that can be disposed of with readily? Something that can be, that's, with something that can be disposed of readily. And that's readily. when you wash your hands, yeah? And that's exactly right. Yeah. You, you, there's just nothing to beat very, very good hand wash. And what about wash. bench washing and things in places like, for example, I suppose they've been cleaning the schools with disinfectant and things. Is that because the surfaces can actually yes. carry the virus for a period the, the of time? Sur- the surfaces can 
can carry the virus for a period of time. And you could well imagine that on the cruise ship that was in Sydney just recently, which is set off now again to Queensland, mm -hmm. there would have been very, very strict uh, washing and cleaning, almost what we'd call in the hospital a terminal clean, where it's, you know, it's a mm. very, very strong clean and making sure all those services are covered. So, yes, so in... I mean, I was amazed by how long it can actually last on a surface, something like 72 hours or something ridiculous. Yes, I believe so. It is something right. like 72 hours, yeah. Right, right. So that sort of hygiene also needs to be taken care of, I suppose. It certainly does. How do people, resp how do the emergency department staff respond to being uh, trialled? Oh, the, the emergency departments um, responded very positively. In fact, it was a very, very high standard because we had these, we had external people that were measuring mm. how well we responded, you know, mm. to our infection control, our surveillance ability, our maintenance once we actually detected a person because we put fictitious people in. Yes. We had actors, people right. going in testing, so there was mm. X amount of people we, we hoped would be picked up. Right. Uh, we were pretty well 100% on that. So um, I, I, I think people have come to realise the real threat of a pandemic. Yes. And in this, one of the, I think one of the most difficult things is, with any type of service, is really being able to keep people at that level of strategic readiness because these mm. are things that sometimes you can't see. Yes. We know if we have some other form of disaster where we can actually see the outcome of that and people can move very quickly. But mm. the skill here is, is keeping your workforce, keeping mm. your emergency services, public health at that that strategic mm. state of readiness, constantly knowing that this could happen any time. Yes, I think uh, we have a chance here of getting complacent, becoming complacent, don't well, we? Well, we do, and I, and I think if we look over just the, um, the history so far yes. of what's been happening since, you know, five or six weeks ago, since this started to emerge from Mexico, and, you know, and, and, and our belief is probably it had already been in Mexico City for maybe five or six weeks before we actually became aware of it because their reporting to World Health is probably not perhaps as good as it would be for many other countries. Um, you know, so we've just got to keep monitoring this, and, and I think what actually happened was there was a lot of interest, there was a lot of media interest very early on, and therefore there was a lot of people got, um, you know, started to move into better understand this virus that we were dealing with. And then as it was moving slowly, and it was found that, in fact, it was maybe the virus was not that strong, um, but it was insidiously still moving across the world. Mm. You know, I think there was a stage, there was a, there was a chance of <clears throat> becoming a little complacent then, but I can reassure your listeners, in this area of health service, we have not become complacent. We are monitoring this 24 hours a day, and we really do understand the public health threat that this could present if we and the community are not ready to respond to it. And I thank you very much for that and for your time. You're listening to Wellbeing, discussing swine flu with Chris Curley, the Health Service Functional Area Coordinator for the Hunter New England Health. So thank you for instilling us with that confidence. Thank you. I've been speaking to Dr David Durheim and Chris Curley from the Hunter New England Health Public Health Team. I'm Dr Virginia Reid. Thanks for listening and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.